1990 Mexican Grand Prix was the greatest performance of Alain Prost's Formula 1 career as he came through from the seventh row of the grid to win by almost half a minute. But the most memorable moment of that race arguably belongs to Prost's Ferrari teammate Nigel Mansell, who stole some of the limelight with one of the most famous overtakes of his career just before the start of the final lap. In many ways, it was a race that perfectly summed up two of F1's iconic drivers. Prost had just made the extraordinary look like another day at the office, while Mansell was grabbing the headlines in the most dramatic of fashion. Welcome to the final regular episode of Series 5 of Bring Back V10s, where we'll discuss everything that was going on in F1 around the time of Mexico 1990. Joining me for this delve back into the early part of the V10 era, and not for the first time, are Sam Smith and Ed Straw. Sam, it's fair to say you love jumping on these for the early episodes uh, from, our, from our era, and it's great to have you back. So when you think of Mexico 90, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, it's probably Mansell's outrageous manoeuvre on Berger at Peraltada. I think that kind of goes without saying. But I have to be honest that the woeful coverage of the race via the Mexican TV feed also stands out. Murray and James, they're just kind of hapless bystanders from the beginning of the race when unfathomably the TV producer, the Mexican TV producer, chooses to watch the entire first lap on board or for us to to watch the entire first lap on board with Michele Alboreto's arrows, which was in the lower reaches of the, the midfield. Um, inexplicable, maddening. You, you can almost hear James kind of planning to smash up the monitors in frustration as he's watching this unfold. It's a sort of seething threat in the background. But, um, I mean, if that happened now, can you, can you imagine? You'd have to unplug Twitter for a month or something, wouldn't you? But um, I do recall that, and I, I actually went back and watched it, and it is just as frustrating 32 years on. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing when I watched it back. I, I didn't remember it from the, the time, obviously, but it did amuse me. And you can, as you said, you can hear James Hunt getting more and more annoyed. So actually, let's let's play that clip here because it is brilliant to listen to. And yeah, as I say, you can just feel the frustration. So have a listen if, if you've never seen this to get a feel for what Sam's talking about. And now this is a Michele Alboreto's car at the, about halfway down the grid. The Michele Alboreto Arrows. And you, there's one of the Delaras in front of him, and that's Prost on the left. Prost started 13th on the grid, so he's got an enormous amount of work to do if he's to get up towards the front of the Mexican Grand Prix. But meantime, up at the front, Ricardo Patrese has got away to an absolutely superb flyer. We're still with Alboreto. I wouldn't mind having a look at what's happening at the front of this race, but I can tell you that it's still at the present moment. Patrese and Senna is starting to challenge. Senna is coming up through the field now. There is Patrese and the two McLarens. It's still in second place, Berger, but Senna is right on his tail. We're with Alboreto again in midfield and waiting now for them to come through at the end of the first lap as Alboreto, you can see how slow the arrows is going. Yes, uh, Alboreto giving us a view of the back of the field and uh, getting more and more distant as we go, unfortunately. We'd quite like to know what's going on up front. So yeah, not uh, the finest moment for TV broadcasting in F1's history. Although I must say, and uh, this isn't a paid plug, but F1 TV's archive has its own highlights edit of this race. It's similar length to the uh, sort of 50 minute BBC highlights you can probably find on YouTube. And they've kind of got around 
uh, the the lapses from the director by using some of their own cameras that were there shooting stuff for the for the season review. So you get much more of an idea of what actually happened. And they didn't have to cut to the live version of the race later on as the BBC did, which is something we're not going to talk about here. But it gives you a much better idea of how the race actually played out. So as I say, not a paid plug, but we do like F1 TV here. So go and check that out. But Ed, good to have you back for the last of our regular episodes. What stands out for you about this weekend? Well, obviously, the first things that spring to mind are a Prost win and some crashing LaRusses. But funnily enough, I can connect this to what, what Sam was talking about, because it's, again, Michele Alboreto's onboard. Not the frustrating first lap coverage, but I can't remember whether I saw this at the time or whether it was from the season review video or something, but the footage onboard of a lap with Michele Alboreto and just showing how bumpy the circuit is, particularly in those S's in the kind of middle of the circuit. It's it's just absolutely amazing. You can find that lap actually on YouTube and it's well worth a look just to see how savagely bumpy that circuit is. So that's my slightly esoteric memory, the positives and the negatives of Michele Alboreto having an onboard camera. I knew it would be left field, uh, but I guess it wasn't about pre-qualifying, but we'll get to that. As I've mentioned, this is our final regular episode of the series, but that doesn't mean the series is over as we'll have two more episodes where we answer questions sent in by you, our audience, using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter and those of you emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. By the time this episode is released, the deadline for questions has closed as we are already cracking on with recording our final episodes. We've had more questions come in than ever before in this series, so thank you so much to everybody. We love the passion you all have for interacting with the show. Now, if you're a part of the Race Members Club, the deadline for questions has not closed. Because we've had so many questions come in already, we're going to give our members their own chance to ask questions for a special episode that will be released exclusively to you after Series 5 has finished. Keep an eye on your email inboxes for us getting in touch, asking for you to send in your questions. And if you've already sent us a question via Twitter or email, feel free to send it again if it doesn't make the cut in our Series finale. Talking of interacting with the show, let's give you some more shout outs to uh, the people leaving us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to Loud V8 Noises, even if you are missing a couple of cylinders, and also Rockout 13, J Rose 0329, The Lingster, Toph 88 and Big H. There are so many reviews coming at the moment, but I am doing my best to, to keep up with them. But let's get on with Mexico 1990. One of the big talking points in F1 around this time was the future of Ayrton Senna. He was in the final year of his initial three-year deal with McLaren and he seemed to be suggesting in public that he was keeping his options open. Senna said, as far as the future is concerned, I want to continue with the best chance of winning. Right now we are assessing the possibilities available to make the right decision. I feel very happy where I am, but in Formula One things change very fast. You have to be careful of your decisions at such a time. If you're in a position to choose the best team with the best engine and the best financial terms, you have to go for it. I have been very happy to be away from negotiations, but this year it's time again. Senna said that he had learned lessons when negotiating with McLaren's Ron Dennis back in 1987, which was believed to be a reference to them flipping a coin over the final half a million dollars in the contract. And Senna lost that coin toss, which cost him $1.5 million over the three years. Dennis said there had been very few discussions about a new deal by this point, and he said money was the worst thing to talk to a friend about, so he and Senna had been avoiding it. So Sam, 
Ayrton was kind of suggesting now I've got to keep my options open. I've got to pick the best package available to me. But looking at the lie of F1 in the middle of 1990, did he really have any credible options outside of McLaren for 91? I mean, he was hardly going to end up at Ferrari alongside Prost, was he? No, he wasn't. Um, and, and actually, there were very few options, uh, credible options at that. It's a question, actually, that's, that's quite hard to answer accurately without, you know, the hindsight which we can, you, you can actually pick and choose from subsequent seasons. But the, the, last, the last year of his contract, um, I, I think you've got to put into context who was managing him. You know, Julian Jacobi was, was managing Senna at this time and will have scoured the paddock for, for any sign of uh, an option that could give Ayrton what he wanted, which, as he said, was to be in the, the most competitive proposition. And McLaren was pretty much head and shoulders between 88 and end of 91 or midway through 91, the most competitive package. And, and, and the other thing, the other big strata that runs through this is Honda. Um, Senna was extremely... Um, extremely close to Honda. He was extremely loyal to Honda. And actually, I think it was the following season, wasn't it, in 91, where he was pretty close to, to a deal or, or going to Williams potentially for, for 92. There was a, a contract, I think, that, that he and Jacoby were, were, were mulling over. Um, but at this stage, you know, 12, 18 months previous to that, there really wasn't anything on, on the horizon. And... Senna was still hungry. He was in his complete pomp. I mean, you'd, you'd argue that that nineteen ninety ninety one Senna was was absolute peak of his powers. Um, the earning potential was was huge. Um, so potentially, the, the Ferrari angle was always bubbling away underneath the surface. But but at that time, it was in a pretty fraught place in terms of the, the management of it. Um, and Jacoby and Senna would have done all due diligence throughout the teams, that the Renault angle may have been of interest, but hadn't really showed its hand there. Uh, Adrian Newey was was still at uh, Leighton House, or, or in the final months of Leighton House, or the final For weeks, For a few probably. more days. Yeah, well, days. <laughs> it wasn't far away, was it, that he was going to move on there? But, it, you know, Newey, although he, his, his reputation was growing, it wasn't at the extent of a, a John Barnard or, or Steve Nichols or... or, um, or or anyone else of the superstar designer bracket at that time, so there was no reason for for, for Senna to move. I mean, he'd, uh, you know, I think we're going to go on to it. You know, he he had a teammate that 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 wasn't really troubling him. He was completely ensconced with McLaren, and at that stage, there was no hint that that Honda might be making a decision uh, not to be part of Formula One, which came um, which came a bit later on in in ninety two. So, yeah, I mean, there was no motivation for Senna to to really look that closely elsewhere at that time. I think also Senna and his management were very aware of the benefit of being seen to look elsewhere as well. Ron Dennis was thinking, well, he won't, won't want to go anywhere else. Senna was thinking, well, I don't really want to go anywhere else. But he had to try and convince them that he was looking at it. There was even a, an approach from Benetton. John Barnard talks about that as well. Benetton was on the up and investing. So I think Senna and Jacoby were playing it quite cleverly because it was ultimately about, about money and him being paid what he was worth being paid. Yeah, I think we talked about that Barnard-Senna discussion, maybe in our Canada 91 episode. Um, I don't know, we've done so many now. We, we, <laughs> we've covered lots of things. But uh, elsewhere at McLaren, Senna's new teammate Gerhard Berger was in a feisty mood. 
He felt more comfortable in the car now it had been modified so he could fit in it better and he had his sights on Senna. Berger said, I think sometimes maybe the press thinks Ayrton is better than he is. I think now he can be beaten. Berger admitted a couple of decades later in Sky's F1 Legends series that he perhaps misjudged uh, that statement. He said, I didn't see Ayrton as a problem. I completely underestimated his level of performance. He was more experienced, more fit. He was very switched on. So then I said, listen, work on yourself, get better, try to beat him whenever you can, when the time is right, and don't see him as an enemy. So Ed, looking at the, the non-hindsight version of what Berger said, do you think maybe at that stage in 1990, he perhaps hadn't grasped just how good the elite drivers were in F1? Yeah, probably. There's a number of factors as well at play here. Berger was only six races into his McLaren career. He'd out-qualified Senna a couple of times, including Mexico. He'd been close behind on other occasions. And as you mentioned, he wasn't comfortable in the car. So he will have thought, yeah, there's more to come. I've made a solid start. I'm going to get quicker. But of course, no driver would ever want to admit publicly in that situation that their teammate might be a little bit difficult to keep up with. That sometimes comes with time. Berger, we also know, wasn't the same driver after Imola 89, the crash there. We talked about that in Season 4, Episode 4. And the other factor is that one of the ways that the, the really great drivers mark themselves out is that they they raise the bar, they, they change the game. Senna was one of those drivers, and I think probably Berger hadn't realised just how much Senna was, was changing the game of being a Grand Prix driver. The only other thing is he might have known all of this and not been able to accept it in his own mind, let alone articulate it, because racing drivers have to believe they are the best. But this early in his McLaren career, he probably still did have the belief that he could push on and get onto Senna's level or ahead of him. Another talking point in F1 was being driven at the time by legendary designer John Barnard, who we just mentioned, and he raised concerns about F1's approach to fuel. Barnard was now at Benetton, having switched from Ferrari at the end of 1989, and he felt F1 should introduce fuel limits to encourage more efficient engines and look at using greener fuels. This was motivated by three things. Firstly, he was concerned that F1 was seeing a return to the type of development that went on in the turbo era, and he felt that needed to be curbed so the engine battle wasn't just a question of adding more cylinders and more fuel. He added, Formula One should be about efficiency rather than brute force. He also felt an efficiency push would help equalise the performance between V8, V10 and V12 engines. And we should perhaps note here that he was now running with a Ford V8 at Benetton, having left Ferrari, where they were all about the V12. And his final point, which he ex expanded on uh, a few weeks later to the independent newspaper, was a concern about the risks of the special fuels being developed in F1 at the time. He said, I don't think people are fully aware of the harm this fuel can cause. It's fairly antisocial stuff. So Sam, fuel limits, greener fuels, these are all things that F1 has only really embraced in the last 10 years or so. Was Barnard ahead of his time here or just lobbying for changes that would help Benetton? In 1990, I was doing mock GCSEs and part of it was chemistry. Stay, stay with me on this, okay? <laughs> it... it it was it was a really formative month because at the same time I was also doing work experience and I did it with a Formula Three Thousand team, uh, Cobra Motorsport. It, even in Three Thousand at that time, there was special additives being used in fuel, and the mechanics were getting nosebleeds and and, and passing out, um, especially the forty Corsa guys, if I remember rightly, from the uh, potent adjip that were they were using. 
toluene and i think it's toluene which is the um one of the aromatic hydrocarbon boosters that were being used as um octane boosters at, at that time um they had this really distinctive smell and gave off a murky haze on on a lot of the cars that were running around this area era a anyone who went to f1 or 3000 races or tests at that at that period in time they will recognize this kind of sweet almost almondy aroma which you got from the pits and and that was what was being used in these hydrocarbon um boosters these essentially rocket fuel which were additives been made to it you know shell Adjip, elf they they were running these through specialist chemists at the time i clearly recall a red gloopy substance um, of an additive being used in 3000 that year I, you know i saw it with my own eyes and that's in formula 3000 so imagine what formula one was like that was when a few teams started to wear masks but you know who knows what the long-term damage was to people who were uh, to mechanics that were using that stuff of course most of these were not particularly environmentally friendly either to say the least and you know it's a bit of a misnomer i think to suggest just because it's a generation ago that no one really cared as much as they do today. I can tell you, I remember at school, one of the big parts of the agenda was the, the ozone layer, you know, for kids of the eighties, the ozone layer and what, and what might be happening to it, or what was happening to it, deforestation and so forth was, was a big, big part of the, the social landscape at the time. So I think, it, I think it's really interesting that someone like Barnard, at least saw this and how important it was even 32 years ago that i think the motivations probably started out as a competitive um topic for him um and then got combined with something a bit more existential apparently uh, it, it's a really interesting one when you get these sort of pioneering comments it, you know you look back at it and it is a generation ago it's fascinating to see you know how they wash through through the history of the sport uh, to where we're at today. So, yeah, it was a pertinent remark to make. Uh, what the motivation was behind it, not quite sure. And, um, and, oh, yeah, by the way, I failed my chemistry GCSE. I, I, know, I know that was going to be your next question, Glenn. Is that because you you were too busy playing with rocket fuel? It was, yeah, yeah. I um, yeah, my uh, my concentration was affected by the adjip being used in three thousand. <laughs> I got an A in my uh, my GCSE chemistry, so just wanted to get that in there. Yeah, it's a nice little brag there from Ed. I think I got a C, um, as I did <laughs> with most of my GCSEs. Uh, behind the scenes, Barnard wasn't settling for being stuck with a V8 engine, though. As soon as he joined Benetton, he'd been pushing forward in Detroit to support the development of a V12 engine. And if you've listened to our Canada 91 episode, you'll remember that Ford eventually did announce it was doing a V12 which never came to be. But Barnard's initial pitch was met with resistance from Codsworth, who developed the engines for Ford. Barnard said in his book, The Perfect Car, which I definitely recommend, the Ford technical people were pretty receptive to new ideas, although they did talk in years instead of months. Codsworth were impossible. They were unbelievable. I used to kick off about their attitude all the time. Now, Ed, this wasn't the first time Barnard experienced uh, tension with the engine side of a team that he worked for. But did he have the right idea suggesting that Ford should be looking at adding some more cylinders to their engines? Yeah, it's certainly worth looking at, although the general trend in that period would suggest that maybe the V10 was the best compromise Always. Uh, compared to the V12 in terms of the power and packaging. And he was also pushing in terms of other technologies. He had a battle with Cosworth about fly-by-wire throttles, which would have improved the efficiency and drivability of a V12, so that would have made that work better. Eventually, 
they did commit to a V12, but I think the way they did it shows why there was a problem there because Benetton had to pay for some of it and there were money troubles there and they quite quickly dropped it once Barnard was out of the picture. So, yeah, probably Barnard was pushing a little bit too much on too many fronts at this stage because Benetton was being built up, so he was pushing on that side. Maybe he was a little bit too used to potentially having more control over over what the engine side was doing. Obviously, he was involved with the, with McLaren when they had the tag-funded Porsche engines that really set new standards for the chassis side driving what the engine was rather than just sort of fitting the car around whatever you had on, on the engine. So maybe he'd have been better off not worrying so much about that. And of course, the, the Ford engine, the HB that was introduced in 89, that and its evolutions continued to be a competitive engine for quite a while. It still won a race as late as 93 with Benetton. So I don't think that was the the biggest problem there. And then, of course, the ZTEC RV8 that replaced it in 94 was pretty handy, wasn't it? So I understand why Barnard was pushing for that. But in this whole Benetton period, which just went spectacularly wrong in so many ways, perhaps that wasn't the thing to to be pushing on, given that clearly the money wasn't there. And I suspect Cosworth were a little bit reticent on it because they had to make it work with the money they were being given. And it doesn't sound like Ford were particularly keen on spending more. Bernie Eccleston made some comments around this time about CART, the organising body that ran IndyCar racing in America. CART was looking at adding races in Brazil and Australia to its calendar, but Eccleston said that was outside of its remit. Bernie said, We're not trying to squeeze CART out of business business or anything like that. The point is that CART is a national organising body and we can't have national organising bodies going outside their own borders. The sporting authorities in each country would be completely disrupted. We would have to change all the rules and the complete structure of FISA, which was uh, the sporting arm of the FIA at the time. So Sam, we're still... A few years away here from F1 losing its world champion to IndyCar when Nigel Mansell went there in 1993. But was this perhaps a sign that Karts was now viewed by Bernie as a potential threat to F1? Yeah, I think it probably was. I think, you know, Bernie was poking his nose into something that, you know, he didn't know a great deal about. Um, And I think maybe when you look at it in isolation, I think although they're very different characters and they were at loggerheads for most of the 80s. Um, Jean-Marie Balest had this ridiculous paranoia about Le Mans, didn't he, around this time. And um, maybe Bernie sort of almost, you know, took that on board into some extent. I think when, you know, when he did eventually shut down sports car racing effectively world sports car championship a couple of years later was was um obsolete by 1992 so in 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 the global view you got the impression that bernie was looking at things in a much more global view with with formula one being at the the core and pretty much everything going on around it from a commercial basis so i mean from the car angle it was it was all about the territory i think surely bernie you know, he knew there was massive potential in the U.S. Um, throughout the the 80s, really. You know, you look at the number of um, regions that Formula E raced on, you know, north, northeast, south, south and west, wasn't it? You know, Vegas, uh, Phoenix, Detroit, um, and then eventually in the Indianapolis a bit later the the 80s consumerist boom and that that sort of Reagan administration in the 80s was right up Bernie's street so you can see that he wanted to um he wanted to chip away at that and he wanted Formula One to be big in America I think 
in his mind it had to become big in america the reality was a little bit different from what we were seeing in f1 though you know these some of those circuits that i mentioned phoenix and, and vegas just just didn't work i mean that they, they were pretty pretty dreadful for for showcasing f1 to a an american public but i think Bernie and F1 didn't really help itself in that respect, but this this was an early flexing of muscles from Bernie to try and ward off Cart because you know even he could see that it was starting to become a very attractive proposition and package. The likes of Andretti and Unser Junior were were building up a, a following, and you know even F1 teams were taking an interest in in Michael and 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 uh, Little Al at that stage. Bernie, I think ultimately Bernie was just covering off off anything that might compromise any of his of his commercial commercial exploitation of F one down the line. I got the impression, and I'm sure others did who who knew him uh, at that time, that he was he was looking to America at the start of the nineties, thinking that you know the the nineties decade would see Formula One really break through into the states, and 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 it and it didn't. You know, it took a, a lot longer than that, and um, potentially this was the start of that slight antagonate and antagonizing attitude that that really um that that really helped that you know that come to be that there wasn't um there wasn't a clearly defined strategy when you when you look at how formula one is now with um with drive to survive and and, and that kind of slight americanization of, of of getting to know f1 and all its constituent parts not that Bernie's intervention did a huge amount of good, though, because Surfers Paradise joined the IndyCar calendar in 1991, and they added a couple of Canadian races. I don't think he was too worried about Canada, but IndyCar hadn't been to Canada for four or five years at that stage. So, yeah, cart ploughed on regardless. Yeah, I think there are many a championship promoter uh, from around this era who will tell you they felt squeezed by F1 as F1 started to grow. And, uh, yeah, I guess I guess Cart got, uh, got the last laugh in a way, well, Got one of the first laughs when it stole Nigel Mansell. Um, but F1's still here and Cart very much isn't. Uh, in 1990, we were still at the peak of anyone and everyone thinking they could launch their own F1 team. And Mexico was supposed to be getting its own team with the glass outfit set to launch its car over the race weekend. The car was designed by Ferrari legend Mauro Forgieri and was set to be powered by Lamborghini's V12 engine. But its departure to Mexico was held when a payment believed to be in excess of $1 million to Lamborghini failed to clear in time. On the Tuesday before the race weekend, the team closed and team owner Gonzalez Luna was believed to have disappeared, leaving his own parent company mired in massive debt. Lamborghini engineering boss Emil Navarro said, I'm very upset by this business. Until this week, there were no problems. Luna has been very correct in his dealings. We are not sure yet if the project is definitely off. A new plan was hatched for the car to be launched at Imola, with Mauro Baldi confirmed as its test driver. Lamborghini was working on its other plans for 1991 regardless, with its boss Daniele Ordetto saying it was hoping to supply two other teams anyway, and at this stage LaRousse and Lotus were the main targets, depending on their finances. He'd previously said Lamborghini was likely to supply two and a half teams in 1991, as he'd had his own doubts about the glass project being ready in time for a full season. So Ed, as we know, Lamborghini was very keen for this project to see the light of day, and in some ways it did carry on into, into 91 under its own steam. But was glass just an example, or another example, of a chancer trying to have a crack at F1? 
It's difficult to be absolutely sure because information on this particular character is a bit limited. It does seem that he got some money together. Supposedly there was a group of Mexican investors he he pulled together, something like 20 million apparently he had, and then he did indeed vanish. There's all sorts of suggestions about exactly why. Probably if you were to say he was one of the chances who was optimistic and got in out of their depth is the most generous interpretation. And the reality does appear to be a little bit worse but it's very very difficult at the time people lost track of him and it's quite hard to get definitive information on exactly what became of him uh, today so if anybody knows do let us know well i did ed it's it's interesting you say that because a couple of years ago at the uh, mexican formula e race i spoke to a local racing uh, author stroke journalist and asked him about luna and nobody had any information about what happened to him after june 1990 he literally vanished into thin air and it was assumed that he took on a new um a, a new name and <laughs> just disappeared of course that you know there may be even something more sinister but but nobody knows i mean giovanni alloy was gonna drive that car uh, and i met him at mexico at the same time and he said he only met luna once and he was one of the um the inside people that were going to be a big part of that team so yeah one of the one of the true mysteries of of this um this period of f1 minnows that's for sure while we're on the subject of F1 team ownership stories that didn't amount to anything, there was a fun rumour in the French media around this time that Renault was interested in buying Ligier. Both Renault and Ligier denied this, and it was a rumour believed to have been fuelled by Renault being on the verge of making a decision on if it continued its association with Williams, which had started in 1989. There were also suggestions that Ligier could be in line for an engine deal if Renault decided to supply a second team which of course would eventually happen a couple of years later. So Sam, let's play hypotheticals here. We love that on the show. Renault owning Ligier at the start of the 1990s. How might that have gone? Hmm, not as well as if it had happened 10 years previously. I think ultimately Ligier was a was a spent force and, and, and actually a little bit of a basket case in this era. I think it started in well, what end of 86 wasn't it? it 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 just was never the same team and and by 88 and then again in 90 with that rotten JS33B that Philippe Alio consistently overdrove and consistently reduced to rubble it it wasn't a great proposition at all and i think it was from the top down really i think Guy Ligier just seemed to lose uh, interest in it um, after those early late seventies, early eighties heydays, and even in mid mid eighties, it was still a reasonably competitive proposition. Occasionally, it, it wasn't a team that a major manufacturer would um, would go to immediately. I think back in ninety, um, I mean, the most positive thing I could say is that it, it, you know it could have been it could have been a trigger potentially that the trigger that Ligier needed if if they'd have gone with Renault but I think Renault were themselves still finding their feet in in F1 anyway and it just would have been a bit too much I think at that time to spread any technical resource I think the fact remained though that Ligier was just yesterday's team and I, I don't see anything beyond that I, I I apart from the obvious nationality angle I can't see a real reason why why Renault would have would have jumped at that stage to to supply a team such as Ligier. 
And of course, the fact that every other Bring Back V10s episode has a bit about somebody potentially buying Ligier, every French engine manufacturer, French company, repeatedly Alan Prost, anybody French who'd been anywhere near F1 and any other good designers constantly being linked to this all-French super team that never happened. And I suspect a big part of that would have been pressure behind the scenes. I imagine the kernel of truth in this is probably somebody in the French government quite liked the idea of this happening and was applying pressure because that seemed to be the standard thing. Pressure applied to companies to get involved with a team that, as Sam said, wasn't really set up or, or equipped to, to live up to its potential. Yeah, and as we very recently covered in this series, um, we finally got to the point where someone did buy Ligier, and of course it was Prost. But let's talk about Prost and F1 team plans, because there's something we left out of that episode on him buying the team in 1997, which was an earlier plan Prost claims he had to set up an F1 team. Now, he said uh, in the 60th anniversary issue of Autosport magazine uh, in 2010, uh, Prost did a big interview, and he said that he'd had talks with Renault around 1989 about setting up his own team back then. So we'll, we'll shoehorn it into this episode. Prost said, I had meetings with John Barnard and Renault in 1989. I then drew up a plan for a team with Adrian Newey and Jean Tot in key positions. In terms of sponsorship, Marlborough and Canal Plus were ready to take the plunge, but finally Renault said no. So let's have another hypothetical then, Sam. Prost, Renault, Barnard, Newey, Tot and plenty of sponsorship money. Would that have been the ultimate F1 super team? Well, it sounds like someone was dreaming up a fantasy F1 game way before, you know, a few years before <laughs> it actually became a thing, doesn't it? I mean, it's nice. It's nice on paper. Sounds great, but but when you dig into it, you know, I'd, I'm not sure. I I don't recall this ever being um, given any really serious column inches back then. But it sounds like Alan was in in '89. He had that sort of terrible, difficult season, didn't he? We talked about a couple of episodes ago, where it, it sounds as like though he was bored. You know, between Grand Prix and and got a pen and paper out and thought, oh, I wonder what what I could come up with for you know a dream team. It it doesn't feel as though it had a great deal of substance. I'm not sure Newey and Todd would ever have worked out particularly well. Um, I, you know, it's, I, I can't see that being a Todd and Braun type axis at that stage. It, I, you have to remember too that Prost and Renault had a lot of baggage from from '82 and '83. When you know, you could easily say that they tossed away at least one title there for sure. So. I can't see it. I can't see it really working. I think the whole story, even if it, even if it just just about registered as one, is is one of the strange ones that probably might have had the faintest shadow of of um, uh, of reality. If it had that, then it could have been built into a you know wow, what could have been sort of thing. So it was all it was all very it all felt very abstract to me, and uh, and it, I think from I don't think it it would have gone that far. Um, yes, Prost had maybe had a few meetings, but that doesn't mean this was ever going to become anything other than a nice idea. Yeah, I don't recall seeing, well, I haven't found any coverage about this at the time. It appears to be something he's mentioned once in an interview, uh, but that's good enough for us. Let's get into the race weekend. We're going to delight both Ed and Sam by finally finding time on one of these episodes to talk about pre-qualifying. That's because two pretty noteworthy things happened to drivers who took part in this session. Firstly, Aguri Suzuki had a scary looking crash 
when he lost control on the damp track surface while trying to warm his tyres in the Friday morning session and he slammed his LaRousse into the barriers on the pit straight but still made it through pre-qualifying driving the spare car. But this was a, a scary looking accident. Another driver making the cut to get through to proper qualifying was Roberto Moreno and he snuck onto the grid in 26th place only to be excluded because he'd received a push start after a spin which the officials were trying to clamp down on at the time and Moreno was particularly upset with his Eurobrun team over this as he said they hadn't told him this was no longer allowed. So Ed, a comedy crash, a ridiculous reason to get thrown out of the race before it even started. Was this what pre-qualifying was all about? Absolutely. It's what makes it worth getting up early for. And in fact, pre-qualifying had been a little bit tame so far that season. So it was good that it all got going there. I have to say, Suzuki's crash was quite something. It's very memorable. And Aguri Suzuki could be a driver of puzzling randomness because he did have that sort of error in him. At times, his pace was nowhere. But at other times, he could be genuinely quick. So, yeah, a bizarre driver. But the fact that he then jumped in the car the spare car and pre-qualified, which was pretty good. It was a tidy car. Chris Murphy designed the Lola LC90. We've mentioned that that was a decent car before, but even so, yeah, showed some fortitude. And it's worth noting that the Saturday before, Suzuki had had a big shunt at Le Mans as well, driving for Nissan. So he took a real beating that week and all credit to him for going through that effort because he knew he needed to get into the race in order to collide with, uh, with Satoru Nakajima on the 12th lap to put them both out. Another casualty in qualifying was the Leighton House team, which suffered the embarrassment of both its cars failing to qualify for the race for the second time that season, as Ivan Capelli and Maurizio Guzman missed the cut. Both drivers said the car, designed by none other than Adrian Newey, was a nightmare to drive over the bumps. And Capelli said on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast that going home after missing the cut in Mexico was really painful. We won't go into too much detail around why this car was so bad at this point and Newey's solution that made the team a victory contender next time out in France because we've covered that in great detail in our France 1990 episode. But Simon Keeble, who had been put in charge at Leyden House to, to balance the books, resulting in plenty of tension with Newey, it must be said, said the atmosphere in the factory after the Mexican weekend was like a morgue because everybody felt it deeply. Newey left the team after the Mexico debacle, as we covered in the France episode, uh, because he went when he went to resign, he found out he was being fired anyway. But uh, Adrian wrote in his book, I'm not by nature a quitter. I didn't want to walk out on Leighton House. But on the other hand, it was obvious the team was financially and managerially in trouble and I was tired of battling. Now, Ed, we don't have to go back over the saga of Newey's split with Leighton House. We've done that story justice previously. But looking back at how bad 1990 had been up to this point, and without the context of how things would turn around in France, did this just look now like a little team that had got lucky with some good results in the past and was now just nothing more than a backmarker? Yeah, it could seem that way from the outside. That March 881 of 1988 is a car that I'm a big fan of, but they didn't build on that after it had some pretty stellar performances. By 1990, they had an evolution of the 89 car because Newey didn't see any point in trying to take the car dramatically on, given they didn't understand why it wasn't working. And that 89 car didn't score a single point. The only points they got were with the 881 right at the start of the season for Guzman's podium. And yeah, 1990, things were still struggling and there's all sorts going on Ian Phillips was out for quite a while with a serious bout of meningitis Akira Akagi who was the money man was uh, hitting some trouble so 
the the team was just heading towards oblivion in in a way it was sort of in the early stages of that and the team was convinced the car was useless and it was all down to the the southampton wind tunnel they used that the surface was bowed the car worked really well on a really flat surface like paul ricard as we've discussed in a in a previous episode but mexico the polar opposite over the bumps the car was a disaster it's a real shame though because those who were really paying attention did know newey was onto something the the Leighton House that year, it was a proto-Williams FW14, ultimately. Many of those ideas went in to what went to be the on to be the dominant car in, in 92 and that was very quick in 91. So I knew he was ahead of everyone, but other than those who were really engaged and knew what was really going on, most didn't know it. And it's a real shame that the whole Leighton House thing in the end fell apart this was the the point where it started to to disintegrate because the reasons Newey left were the very reasons why it couldn't pick up the pieces thereafter at the sharp end of the grid tires were the big talking point as everyone was struggling with Goodyear's qualifying tires these super soft tires were meant to only be good for one lap but they were blistering even before the end of just one attempt Goodyear believed this was because of the low grip surface and the fact that a lubricant used in the moulds when the tyres were made was remaining in the tyre surface and making them too slippery to bite into the track when they were brand new. The Ferrari drivers found they were faster in qualifying using race tyres and at Benetton Nelson Piquet comfortably outqualified teammate Alessandro Nanini because Nanini stuck with the qualifying tyres while Piquet used race tyres. Some people got it right though, with Gerhard Berger's McLaren and Ricardo Patrese's Williams claiming the front row slots on the grid, ahead of Senna and Mansell on the second row. Prost, meanwhile, was down in 13th, yet he sounded confident, saying, I'm very optimistic. The most important thing is to have a good race tyre, and that's what we have. Prost expanded on this years later when he chose this weekend for his Race of My Life feature that used to run in Autosport magazine. He said, The decision not to qualify on qualifying tyres and concentrate on race setup is never easy, but I was sure it was the right decision. I was obviously surprised and disappointed to start 13th. I was expecting to be maybe 5th, 6th or 7th. I said to my race engineer, don't worry, but nobody believed me at the time. In this type of team, when you have a car capable of the front row and you're fighting for a championship and then you qualify 13th, sometimes people do not understand. So Sam, trying not to use hindsight here, which is incredibly difficult. If you're starting 13th on the grid, Prost is saying publicly that he's very optimistic. Is that something to be taken seriously or does it just come off as a driver putting a brave face on a bad qualifying performance? Yeah, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, I did a bit of research into this and it was actually Prost's worst starting position since Detroit in 83, seven years back. So there's a little bit of detail as well as to Prost qualifying. He'd actually made a mistake in the Friday session and spun off. So usually he could have been, you know, you alluded to this before with Moreno's Eurobrun. He should have been able to be pushed started, but the new rule saying that he couldn't be meant he had to sit out that session. So the following day, when he misjudged his quick run and he got traffic, he was just mired in the midfield. So I think I think a few months down the line, or whenever he did the race of my life, it was in the it was, you know, through that prism of the, the the champagne and the trophy, let's say. I think if you'd have asked him on the Saturday night, I think you'd have got a very different answer. In in his mind, having done a lot of running on the sea compound good years, he was no doubt reasonably 
comfortable, especially knowing that Hermanos Rodriguez has got that huge long straight and, and you can actually overtake there much easier than you can at many other tracks. So he still had a lot of work to do, though. Um, it was an unpleasant surprise being down there with the likes of De Cesaris and Barilla. So there was always the feeling that when you're down there with those guys that anything could happen um, in the first few laps. But he, yeah, I, I think, you know, when you when you need a steady head from that position... Uh, Alan Prost is the guy to to pull something off, isn't he? I mean, how many times did he glide his way to the front so clinically, and uh, and so it proved today. But yeah, I think I think ahead of ahead of race day, I think you'd have got uh, a very different response as to his uh, his his potential for for the event. Yeah, I think you're right. The the passage of time and the fact that he won the race perhaps means he can frame this as oh, it was the plan all along. Um, but as you say, it was. Uh... And as Prost admitted, actually, when he finally did this interview, uh, the plan, I think, was to be kind of on row three of the grid, not uh, necessarily row seven. The early part of the race suggested Prost was right to focus on race setup. He made steady progress up the order, climbing up to eighth by lap nine. But up ahead, both front row starters were in tyre trouble. Patrese took the lead at the start, but quickly fell out of contention as Williams chose the wrong tyre compounds for race day, while Berger pitted early as his left front tyre was graining heavily and already showing signs of blistering. That left Senna in charge out front relatively unchallenged, particularly as Mansell had had a poor start from the second row and was making his way back up from dropping to seventh. But Prost still thought he had a shot at catching Senna later on. After the race, he said he'd asked his team to keep him informed of the gap to the guy leading the race. Notice he didn't name Senna, I don't know if that was intentional, as he said he did not want to push too much early on to, so he could save his tyres for later. Prost got into the points uh, with sixth place on lap 13, but he stayed there until lap 26. So as we kind of mentioned earlier, the, the, the progress was hardly meteoric. Um, but Ed, was this level of patience we were seeing from Prost perhaps the kind of thing only a driver like he in this era was actually capable of? Yeah, I think he still understood that even from 13th, he had a chance in this race. As Sam explained, qualifying wasn't actually perfectly executed, so it wasn't quite the plan to be that. But he still knew the race would come to him, so he had that intelligence and perspective, discipline, and I think the patience as well to to do that. He spent, as you say, 13 laps in sixth place. I don't think he spent... I think he spent 13 laps in third place as well, but that was the position he was in the most in the race. Because he understood what he was attempting to do, he didn't want to overwork the front tyres in particular. He had a little bit less wing than Mansell, so he knew he could overtake. But it, it, it was that patience, because it would be so tempting if you were a driver, knowing you had that speed, just to try and force the issue, rather than just being patient. And you see him a few times, there's points where passing one of the Williams drivers he could have had a bit of a lunge. <laughs> the coverage, as Sam mentioned at the start, wasn't great. So there's a few moments you think he could put himself in a spot of bother and then he's there in the next shot still behind. So, yeah, he was being sensible and just knew that the race would would come to him. And I think it would have been very easy as well for a driver to say, oh, well, qualifying went against me because of traffic and this, that and the other and then just allow themselves to have a quiet afternoon. But Prost could actually let it play out well. And it's absolutely true. There were not many drivers who could do that, particularly in this era when it's getting harder and harder to do that. It takes a great driver to do it, and even then, only a subset of the great drivers can do it. Nigel Mansell was a great driver in the other car, but the way he approached the race was very, very different. 
yeah, as we'll come to. And actually, by this point, uh, Prost was up with Mansell. So the two Ferraris picked their way through the rest of the front runners, passing Patrese, Bootsen and Piquet to eventually run second and third behind Senna. Prost then passed Mansell for second on lap 55 when Mansell got balked by backmarkers Michele Alberto and Gregor Foytek coming onto the main straight. Mansell complained about being held up after the race, saying he was a bit miffed and believing that the backmarkers cost him 10 miles per hour on the straight. He said it was just a question of whether you got good traffic or bad traffic. We were having a great race and Alan was a bit quicker on the straight. I was pushing very hard. I just didn't luck out with the traffic. But Sam, this uh, this this moment from Prost, was, was this perhaps Mansell-like opportunism here in traffic to pounce on Nigel? Yeah, it was in a way. I think he... Um... I think he judged it really nicely. I think Ed Ed covered off a lot of the the patience aspect of it, but he still had to get maneuvers made and and done, and and that wasn't easy. At, uh, yeah, I said I contradict contradicting myself because I I said actually Hermanos Rodriguez was relatively easy, but of course the surface was very bruising for the for the tires, and he had to look after his tires. So there was a real. Um, it was a real compromise to that extent. He, he got uh, Mansell got really outrageously held up by Olivier Griard's seller, and, and if you don't know about Olivier Griard, he was one of the most erratic drivers. I mean, he's right up there in the De Cesaris League of um, you know if he if he didn't fancy complying, then you sure as hell knew about it. I once uh, saw him uh, grab a security guy by the throat at a Silverstone. Group C race as well, which is uh, maybe maybe a subject for another day. But he was a uh, yeah, uncompromising is the word for Mister Griar. Um, uh, it was classic Alan though, wasn't it? You know, you you look at the lap chart as as Ed said, and it, it's just this gliding, um, gliding presence through the pack. Uh, but he you know he, when he had to get moves done, he he didn't mess about. He did them pretty clinically, executed them well. And I think in the early stage when he had to be patient behind. Patrese's Williams and, and Ricardo has been very forceful in protecting his position then Alain just sat back and, and waited for the time to come to him but yeah I, you know he could be for all of his um for all of his patience and his grace Pross could get maneuvers pulled off and, and when he needed to um he did them clinically and, and it um it worked for him on this day. And it should be remembered it was the pass on Mansell that was key to the win not the pass on Senna for the lead I'd argue. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I do think that uh, Prost probably doesn't get the credit uh, he deserves sometimes just because of his reputation as, as the professor. But by the time Prost was ahead of Mansell, the Ferraris were hunting down Senna, who was in tyre trouble by this stage. Senna radioed the pits, asking if he should come in. Initially, the team didn't hear him. And when he asked again, Ron Dennis told him to stay out. Senna didn't fight the Ferraris when they caught him. So as Ed says, really cross-passing centre for the lead wasn't a huge moment. And Ayrton even pointed Mansell through, which we should say he didn't quite do uh, for Prost. Then on lap 63, all hell broke loose. Mansell spun at turn three after getting onto the dirty part of the track. And just seconds later, Senna's right rear tyre punctured. On McLaren's gamble to stay out, Ron Dennis said he was wrong to think that the best option was to try to nurse the car home to third, but he added, the closer it got to the end, the more sensible it seemed to keep him out. Senna took some blame as well, saying he could have taken the initiative and decided himself to come in anyway. Now, Ed, as always, I know you've looked through the, the timing data from this race. There was a pretty big gap 
back to the rest of the cars in the points when Senna's pace first started to drop off. I think he was, what, around 30 seconds clear of everyone else other than the Ferraris. Were McLaren too cautious here, thinking that their best option was to to stay out and limp home to third place? Yeah, it's it's tricky. The point where Senna could have been brought in for tyres and potentially still won was quite was quite early on. I don't blame them for not going for that at that point. So that was reasonable. I think the point where they really made the mistake was once he was losing positions, not to bring him in anyway, because the worst it would have been has dropped him to probably fourth because Nanini and Bootson, who ended up fourth and fifth, they both had problems. Um, so they weren't going to be a, a big issue even if he dropped behind them. So I think that was probably probably the mistake. You could maybe bank on him trying to hold on against Prost and Mansell for, for a period on, on the tyres not working. But as soon as you get to the point where he's been passed and Senna's radioing in saying, I really need to come in, you've probably got to do it because your driver's the best data you've got at that stage. And with the championship position he was in, he already had a handy little lead. It would have been pragmatic to to do so. But I don't blame them for thinking that they could they could see if they could hang on from earlier on, certainly. Yeah, and they also, I feel, they had, they had the data and the experience of seeing Berger come back through the pack. Obviously, it had taken Gerhard a long time, but Senna would have had the fastest car, arguably the fastest driver with a big tyre advantage. I, I think I think they should have been a bit more ambitious here. Well, it, I, it seemed like a better way to get the third place they were aiming for to me. There were only six laps to go by this point. Mansell had managed to rejoin still ahead of Berger, but three laps from the end, Berger absolutely lunged Mansell into turn one and just barged him out of the way. Mansell called this pass an ugly move in his autobiography. And after the race, he said it was a good job he and Berger got on well from their year together at Ferrari in 1989. Berger thanked Mansell for opening the door, admitting that he'd made the move too late. And in Autosport, Nigel Roebuck wrote that Mansell's act of self-preservation gave Berger some racetrack he didn't deserve. So Ed, what do you make of this move? Was this too much from Berger? Certainly by the standards of the time, I think it was. And it probably wasn't entirely needed because at times he was catching at a hell of a rate. Over three seconds he was able to take out of Mansell. But at the same time, if you look at it more by modern standards, it's not completely unusual you see that sort of thing going on. I'm not necessarily saying the modern standards are the right ones. But I see why Mansell was annoyed at the time. And Berger probably felt that his best chance was a bit of an ambush. So... Yeah, I don't blame Mansell for being annoyed and Berger probably felt it was a bit too much, but they both got away with it. And I don't think we can complain too much about Berger making a move that required cooperation from Mansell, given what followed. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly extremely late. I mean, it's probably a bit of a bit of an underest- underestimation of the whole situation that, that Berger forced on Mansell there. It had its roots in that... Um, in the way that the race was was playing out and and what was going on with with Mansell's difficulties, but you know, I, I in in terms of that kind of move, I think as desperate as it was, it need, it obviously plainly needed somebody of Mansell's experience to see it coming, and the fact that he um, Berger just about made the apex. I mean, it could so easily have been, uh, you know, strike two. I think they they could have easily both retired from that that incident um but you, you can understand mansell's anger because it was 
it was rude. It was ridiculously late. But I think the fact that Mansell kind of made it a cleanish pass by taking avoiding action, which must have been incredibly galling for him, and, and I think sparks the red mist that we saw a few laps later. I mean, it was just it was just brilliant entertainment. Um, whether it was rude or not, I, I think I think Roebuck summed it up quite well. That the fact for was that for us spectating and watching at home in that that madhouse Mexican production on TV, it just added an extra an extra frisson of. Uh, of, of expectation of as what was to come in the final lap, so it was it was great entertainment. But yeah, I mean, Gerhard got away with one there, that's for sure. I think you're both probably right as well that those are the kind of moves that, that kind of just send it and then put it put the destiny of the incident into the other driver's hands. We see a lot more of that now than we did back then. Mansell admitted that the move from Berger had fired him up to claim the place back, and at the end of the penultimate lap, he got his revenge in the most spectacular fashion at the fearsome Peraltada corner around the outside. Matzel described the move in his book as one of the high points of his season, saying, I darted from left to right behind him to keep him looking in his mirrors and wondering which side I was going to go. After the race, he said, we were side by side and I'd made my mind up that I was going to go in there flat and that's exactly what I did. Fortunately, Gerhard lifted. Berger said he had to lift because it was too dangerous for them both to try to take the corner side by side. Some of F1's most famous writers were impressed as well. In Motorsport magazine, Dennis Jenkinson said this battle was Dijon 1979 all over again, referencing the memorable scrap between Gilles Villeneuve and René Arnoux. And he said Mansell's pass would forever rate as one of those classic overtaking moves, which I think all these years on we can definitely say was the case. In Autosport, Nigel Roebuck said it was a move to be contemplated only by the confident or the abnormally brave. And he added that Mansell was both. So, uh, Sam, 32 years later, now it's your turn. How good was this pass? Oh, it was it was top draw. I mean, you can't dispute that, uh, whatever the circumstances and whether Berger backed off or not. He plainly did, but still, uh, Mansell was fully committed. Um, as I said, it had its roots in that earlier uh, incident and, and fired Mansell up. What what I don't really understand about it though is 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 how Berger kind of lets it happen, lets it get to the point where you know he's unable to defend the position. I think he's surprised. I think maybe. He thought Mansell was just trying to get close so he could get a good slipstream down the the main straight, and and then he realised too late that that Mansell was actually coming round whatever may happen. And if Berger didn't give him the space and lift off, then you know Mansell was Mansell would have ended up at the Azteca Stadium, wouldn't he? Um, a few miles away, it wouldn't have been pleasant. Um, so it it was a it was a it was one of the great moves. I mean, Mansell pulled. Several of those off, didn't he? Woodcut, uh, sorry, not Woodcut, Stowe in uh, 87, that one on uh, Johansson and Senna at Hungara Ring. There's, there's several more as well, but I think this tops the lot just for the sheer audacity. And when you put into context the fact that the track was so bumpy and that corner, the Peraltada, was, was so quick with minimal runoff, was it as good as Dijon 79? No, probably not in terms of the, the the whole battle he had with Berger, but nothing much is, is it? I mean, it's you know Dijon seventy nine is is the is the pinnacle of two two racing drivers having a you know a bare knuckle fight. So I think um, I, it's certainly memorable, and and just the dynamics of it, you know, the the fact that it was in NTSC format and it was slightly grainy, 
and you have the the when you look at Prost's head and the way he drove the car, it's complete serenity. When Mansell's in that Ferrari, that gorgeous Ferrari, there's a dynamic. His head is moving every which way, and when he's fired up, you just sense that something's going to happen, and the the momentum he had from that section to to the Peraltada, you knew that something special was going to happen, and it, and it, uh, so often the case with Nigel Mansell, he made it happen. Much like Dijon 79, that meant the battle for second took some of the attention away from the man that won the race because by this point, Prost was cruising to victory 25 seconds up the road, which when you consider he started 13th is just phenomenal. Prost said afterwards, the car got better and better and the grip was increasing. I had no problems. It may have been my best drive. I don't know. It was very difficult to start so far back. I did not believe I could win the race. As we've mentioned, years later, when Prost did pick this as his best race for Autosport, uh, he said it was between this one and the 1986 Australian Grand Prix when he snatched that year's championship. And he said not only was it his best race, it was his best weekend. And interestingly, he did counter the claim he made at the time because he said he told his team after the warm-up on race morning that he would win the race. And one of his engineers said nobody wins from 13th. So, Ed... The fact that we had all that drama going on behind, Prost is almost half a minute up the road by this point, having come from so far back. Was it just the ultimate Prost way to win a Grand Prix? Well, I think the fact that Prost chose it as the race of my life probably sums that up as well, doesn't it? It was great just because it was, as well as intelligent, it was dramatic to watch as well. Watching live, you wouldn't know this was playing out. It's very easy to think that, of course, it was going to play out that way once it's happened because you know all the elements. But just the self-confidence and intelligence and pure speed it would have taken to to make it work. It, it showcases so much of what made Prost great. And he won 51 races. The fact that's probably his best says a lot because there are some other great drives as well. Winning at Carl Army in 82 from a lap down is, is one that isn't perhaps talked about enough. The only thing I would say is that I think because it's Prost, there is a bit of a almost a framing problem here that we focus on the the intelligence, the setup, the professor being he outclevered everyone. Well, he did that, but he was also blindingly quick. And I think if Senna had won the race this way, it would have been uh, oh, he, qualifying didn't go quite right, but he charged through and, and won the race. And I think it's important not to overlook that element of the race for for Prost, especially because he had to beat Mansell as well, and Mansell obviously was quick and. The fact that Mansell spun while trying to catch Prost back up again probably tells you a lot about how keen Mansell was to win that one. So I just think it not only showcases the qualities we always talk about with Prost, but I think it also showcases qualities that are overlooked in that for all the other things, he was a blindingly quick race driver who could win races in absolutely brilliant fashion. And I think we have to remember that as well. I think this was a really pivotal race as well because it was the first of a hat-trick. He then went on to win at Ricard and, and Silverstone and, and sort of took a grip of the team because his 1990 Interlagos apart had been a little bit underwhelming. Um, and, and I think it it's too much to say it broke Mansell, but something happened in that stretch of three races that changed the dynamic in the team. And Mansell often refers to politics. I think, yes, you know, undoubtedly there would have been some politics. There there always is in top teams with top drivers. But I think more pertinently, what, what happened here is that Prost got on top of it with this hat-trick of wins and teed up a title challenge. 
and 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 it just got to Mansell. And by Silverstone, the third of Prost's wins, Mansell had quit and and was off to the golf course, or, or not quite as it turned out. So I think it was a really interesting race, not just from the the sheer entertainment and the way it played out, but actually the the bigger the bigger questions that were answered for the context of the season and then beyond that from for, for Mansell's future as well and 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 the way that Prost established himself uh, at Ferrari yeah I complete I completely agree with uh with Ed there saying that perhaps this this gets pre- framed in the wrong way because of how we recall Prost and it's very interesting when you look at at the coverage at the time uh and and what has been said by people since as Sam says there, there's no hint at the time of Mexico 90 really of any tension between Mansell and Prost, but give it another what, two or three weeks. And uh, yeah, then there's there's internal uh, warfare basically at, at Ferrari. So how quickly things change. And yeah, this, this brilliant performance from Prost appeared to be the catalyst for some of that. So we'll leave it there for Mexico 1990. And that's it for the episodes in series five where the subject is chosen by us. Thanks to Ed and Sam, as always, for helping us revisit the early days of the V10 era. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this series and got in touch to tell us how much you're enjoying the show. And to all of you who have gone back and and started from the beginning and are telling us that you're going through the entire back catalogue. That's great to hear. This isn't quite the end for Series 5, though, as we still have two more episodes to come. And now it's time to hand the controls over to you as we try to answer as many of your questions as possible about F1's V10 era.